Constructivism. I am your host, Mason Hunter, and my co-host, Abe Stein. Abe, how are you doing? I'm good. I uh, did something I rarely do uh, after coming back from Edwards. I just slept a lot. I had a really, really restful day today. That is awesome. I drove home today, chillaxed a little bit myself, doing the podcast with you now. It's going to be a good night. That's all? It's just going to be a good night? It's going to be a good night. You ready? Just, just, you know what? Not everything has to be a crazy stuff. This is going to be a good night. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to go watch some anime. I'm going to hit the bed a little early. Call it a good day. What you watching? What's, what am I watching? What's on your dock? I watched a little bit of anime today myself. Odd Taxi, I think is what it is. It's the one I've, I've been putting it off for a while, and I decided to watch after the oh. episode. Oh, I watched Odd Taxi like maybe a year and a half ago. Incredible. You'll love it. I'm excited now. What did you watch before we move on? Uh, I'm still catching up with My Hero. I'm in like the episode 160 range. Don't want to spoil anything, but yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. Nice, nice. Well, speaking of My Hero, Spencer is out this week for some personal stuff, but we will be back next week, and we are going to have some episodes coming out in the holiday season, a little year in review. But before we get to that, Abe, we need to be doing Always Improving because it's the main point of the show. And you're up first, Abe. How did you always improve this week? Yeah, so my always improving moment this week um, actually came from a conversation I had right after round nine of the RC. So for those of you who watched coverage, uh, if you remember the round nine feature matches, you would have saw seen one aspiring Spike uh, defeat a near faceless, uh, nameless Rakdos player, who happens to be my good friend, uh, my good friend uh, Chris Song. Uh, and also you've seen Jarvis lose a Rakdos mirror by mulligan five in game three. And so both of my friends, close friends who I worked with this event, uh, lost playing their win-and-ins, and then were very, very, uh, could tell they are just like kind of dejected, sad, frustrated about it as we're waiting around for dinner, um, waiting for people to be done so we can go get dinner for, after around 10, after like a grueling day. So I convinced them to play just like some Rakdos smears, like the, the Junderdome or whatever you want to call it. Um, just to just to get their frustrations out, and also because I wanted to see um, just a bit of how the games play out, because I haven't had a chance to play much of the Rakdos mirror selfishly. Um, so they agreed, and they were they were jamming back and forth. And there was the spot where um, something I hadn't really seen or thought about before until seeing it is you know what is the best way to uh, approach your opponent playing they're playing the Rakdos mirror, play Inti on turn two on the play, you're on the draw. And your best play is going to be to stomp the Inti with your Bone Crusher Giant. You play your second land. And now Mason, pop quiz. I mean, I'm a quiz. I'm not even certain I'm absolutely correct um, in my evaluation of, of it. But when do you think the best time to stomp that Inti is? Yeah, it's interesting. My gut is, is that I would like to stomp it a little sooner than later, probably like on my main phase. To pl- it depends on my hand too, right? Because if, if the Bone Crusher is my only threat... I might want to stomp main phase so I don't get blown out by like a beginning of combat. They fatal push. I stomp. They fatal push the NT. Um, and I don't think I really want to let them have the trigger off the NT. So I think, you know, most of the time when I'm on a low threat hand, I probably want to do it on my main phase. And if I have a high threat hand, and I'm willing to exchange, you know, bone crusher for a fatal push type spell. Then I'll let them trigger it. And then uh, the target, whatever, and then stomp. So I think this is roughly what both Jarvis and my friend, uh, my friend Chris, were thinking, because uh, Chris fired it on their main phase, um, and Jarvis 
I think I'm in the same position, which came up like once. I think you just did it at the beginning of combat. Now, after watching that, I, I didn't want to, they were like playing for, you know, pride and glory and whatever, uh, whatever pride points they wanted to put on the line there. Um, so I didn't want to intervene. But afterwards, I asked them the question of like, what is the thought process and reasoning behind why you did it? Because personally, here's my evaluation of things. And you let me know, Mason, if you think this makes sense. I think the optimal thing to do in the Rakdos mirror, if you're on the draw in that exact position, is to allow them to attack for two and place their triggers on the stack and decide if they're going to discard or not before stomping. And here's why. Um, number one is that you there's nothing, especially an open deck list, you know there's nothing that's going to stop the stomp from removing the NT from play. And really the most important thing with the NT right is not allowing it to snowball and to generate card advantage off of things like Copter or maybe generate a ton of repeated accrued advantage like getting a counter and digging deeper to the things you want, more threats, uh, whatever it is, uh, from from the triggers. So if you're killing the NT before it's a 3-3, you're still fine. Um, but let's talk about NT's trigger, right? So NT's trigger turns your card in hand into a card that is off the top of your library, a random card that is only available to you on that turn. So... That is actually, you know, by my evaluation, worse than a card in hand. Um, and obviously, the, the context matters a lot, right? Like you were saying, if you would really fall behind or, or lose um, a ton by having them, like, push their NT in response, um, so then your Bone Crusher's gone forever, or stomp their own NT, then that might be a negative exchange um, for you. But, A, I don't think that a lot of players on literally their turn three are going to be able to discern that that's the best play to be making, or it's going to say a lot about their hand to do it, and it's like, I'd be pretty okay with that, because I want you to consider this scenario, Mason. Yeah, obviously, they're flooded. They have a t too many lands. They're going to discard a land and try to hit a spell. So some amount of times, they'll hit another land, so they've remained card neutral. Um, they'll hit a spell, in which case they've turned their land into a spell, um, which is a suboptimal outcome for you, but you couldn't know the context of their hand before yeah. that. Um, or C, they discard a land and hit a spell they can't cast um you know or like a fatal push for a creature you don't have um right in which case they're down a card uh or alternatively they could have too many spells in hand be needing to hit a land um and they could discard a spell like some you know removal spell they see they don't need or a three drop they're not gonna be able to cast um and hit another three drop they can't cast or another removal spell right the same brick supply Hit the land, which is, again, suboptimal for you, given if you'd known their hand, but you can't uh, in, in the scenario I'm, I'm talking about. So uh, they've increased the quality of their card for the context of that draw, um, or they remain neutral on cards, and they have to cast that card um, right then and there, whichever one they revealed, which might be worse than, especially in the context of the Rakdos Mirror on turn three, um, where Fable the Mirror Breaker is just the best thing to play on turn three. So if they were going to curve into into Fable, and now they've discarded, and they're like, okay, well, do I go down a card? Um, you know, because I was either digging for that, you know, digging for a land, or it was just best to try to get my thing to a 3-3 to prevent this from happening. Um, then I can play my Fable on turn 3. Or your opponent might choose not to discard because they know that just going into into Fable is going to be such a better curve than anything they could, like, discard into. And so they don't want to do this thing that's worse than, than looting. Um uh, with, in this scenario with this draw. So, uh, 
like, and I think that a lot of players this weekend, especially with a card like Inti, and this is where like it's really an always improvement for me, is taking the time to break down all of the like the trees available and, and discussing the logic behind um, like a, a very micro play like this with um, with these players to just kind of try to come to a consensus or see how they felt about my uh, evaluation of things and you know if I was missing anything and and whether or not that was you know important to them because to me it felt like the things that mattered the most were actually like a I would get the opportunity to go up a card on the exchange if they discarded it into there's like a risk there that isn't wasn't necessarily being evaluated by them um, or like in, when you said it like you know you don't want to give them the opportunity to to get their trigger and get the value out of it it's like well they might go they're actually risking to get value they're only going to stay card neutral um at best but they're getting selection advantage which is kind of hard to quantify um so it's just really interesting to like get into that or is it the play pattern there on specifically like the amount of mana they're going to have available making it so that all of their alternative plays they're going to save the inti or maybe make the inti not worth it like if i can kill the inti the next turn or maybe even leave the Inti around might be better to kill the Fable token to avoid the game snowballing away so I can play my own Fable, force them to discard, you know, keep my Fable token, force them to answer that stuff, and then find my own Fatal Pushes to answer the Inti, something like that. So uh, it was just a really, uh, like, it felt like a really interesting point in the game state to examine that is especially brand new with Inti being such a new player to the Rakdos deck and, and the, the Mirrors. And, um, yeah, so it was just a, a really good conversation to get into. I don't know if you have anything you want to rebut yeah. about my, my thought process there. I have a lot, I have a lot of thoughts and I'm really, I, I would be really interested in like sinking our teeth in here and however long this takes, however, however long it takes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, okay. Just wanted to, before moving forward with that. Okay. So there are a couple things that jump out to me and I don't know if I'm right or wrong. I'm just kind of thinking in real time here. So first I think it depends on the type of Rakdos deck you are too. Right. So, for example, let's say you're the Gigantha one. That's curve is kind of lower. You have multiple Croxas, right? Um, for example, um, I played against someone who I believe had three Croxas in their deck. Um, I mean, they have some like yeah, that was the systematic list, I think. I believe so. Yeah, and Ellen Bogan did that, and like uh, Sky qualified for the Pro Tour playing it, who I believe had three Croxas. I definitely at least had two. I I played them and lost. Um, but I can't remember in the moment. That was also round 10. And we were both delirious. There was a moment where it was just, we were both like, all right, we're, we're in reality. We're here, <laughs> you know? But anyways, um, so I think it matters a little bit on that kind of deck, you know? Like, for example, if my opponent has a bunch of Croxas, I think there's a lot more incentive. And I think, by the way, you would know that via Gigantha being revealed. Like, if your opponent has Gigantha, I think that moves the needle on, like, okay, I should probably kill this because them actually just moving through cards matters, right? Like, we joke and maybe don't really talk about velocity in a real way, but, like, moving through your deck is going to matter in these mirror matches when Crocs is a heavy player, right? So I worry a little bit about that, and that has some context. Um, for the sake of the conversation, it sounds like these players were not playing that build, or were they? Like, because I think that... No, they weren't playing, like, three... They weren't playing more than, like, maybe two... Two Croxes. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, so... My next real thought is, I don't know if I want to give my opponent the the choice of discarding because I think a lot of it's predicated um, on them making a choice, and I would expect my opponents to make the right choice. Does that make sense? Like I, I, 
if I'm banking on my opponent making a wrong choice, it's because that's my only out, right? Um, like, it doesn't even need to just be Jarvis or your friend, too, like, are good, strong players. Like, just in general, I would assume my random Rakdos opponent's going to make the right choice. So I worry about giving them a chance to, you know, for example, there's a chance for me to get ahead. Um, and I'm going to loop back to what you're saying there in a second. But, like, I, I think there's a chance for me to get ahead. And, like, yes, for example, if my opponent, you know, uh, needs to make a land drop and hits Fable, that is, like, a huge advantage, right? They discard a spell, they hit a Fable, that's huge. But I also, you know, they might not even do that sort of thing, which is then neutral, right? Um, so it doesn't really go anywhere. Or it, like, gives them a chance to get out of a sticky situation, right? Where they have too many lands. And the too many lands one is the one that, like, sticks out the most to me. Where it's, like, just even though they're going to remain card neutral on the land exchange, right? Where, like, you know, I discard Haunted Ridge, hit, you know, let's say Black Cleave Cliffs. Um, it is an exchange that is neutral. But I've got to move through a card. And I think moving through a card actually matters a fair bit. Especially in these matchups where typically I feel like the Rakdos matchup is decided by like play skill. And then the ability to weather the flood. If that makes sense. Like your ability to convert resources correctly. Like some of the best Rakdos players I've seen. Or like some of the best players are like people who like sometimes held Fable for a turn. Because they could develop in a different way fight over the opponent's resources a little bit and gave them a chance that if they started to flood out, they would have more ability to rummage those lands away. Does that make sense? Um, or use their resources more effectively. So I'm a little hesitant. Now, I will say in your defense, I think that not enough people have had the thought that you had, nor did I think through it in that way. I think that's an important thing to consider in the sense of like, there is some real upside. And if I am in a bad position, or I am on a mulligan, or my hand is very land heavy, you know, I kept like a reasonable hand, I'm flooding out, uh, maybe even on a mulligan, then I might need to take a risk and have things go that way. And thinking about it the way you did, I think is important. I just have some reservations because I think, I, I, maybe the velocity is the wrong word and feel free to correct me if you have a better word here, but the like moving through the deck, I think is actually, it is like you, you even said it, it's hard to quantify and I don't know how to quantify it in a way that is, like, tactile. But to me, I'm just, like, I can feel that that matters, you know? Like, moving through cards matters. And only is going to be, like, good for me if they kind of get whiff punished, right? Like, they discard a thing that kind of matters. They hit the Heartless Act of the Fatal Push or a Shieldred type thing, right? Like, they do something like that. That is a huge advantage for me. And thinking about NT, like you said, in that context, I think, is important but I think enough of the things break neutral or positive for them that I lean towards being like, hey, I don't want to let them get out of this sort of even state. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think that a difference here in how we're thinking about it is that, A, so first of all, there's like a lot that if you're listening here, like there's a lot that's very nuanced that's going to depend on the context of your hand. And like, you know, if they turn a land into a Thoughtseize or like, is your hand weak to something or did you do... Uh, the cards in your hand matter and you know what what even what happened on turn one can matter like their lands your lands um there's a lot of information there that that will go into this but at its bare bones i think that uh while especially with croxa which cares about number of cards in your graveyard to escape um just a lot of things that mitigate the number of like i guess mitigate the issue of 
of like, oh, I didn't see enough actual exchanges of cardboard in order to escape this Croxy yet, so I need more time. Like, Inti discarding, and then, like, if you discard a land and hit a land, um, and you play that land, like, it's basically like you had a fetch land, um, in terms of, like, being able to delve or you know, escape uh, the Croxa, so it does get you one closer to that. That is a very valid point of it. Um, I think that at the crux of this, though, is that uh, for, for me, is that I think that the idea that the best decision for your opponent when their hand um, like will always, like them making the best decision for them, right? It could improve their card quality, but it's really their, they're taking a huge risk in discarding a card to try to get a different card if that's the primary function of it. Like the plus one plus counter actually does do a lot of carrying in terms of like, oh, well, at least I got some form of advantage if they don't have a copter or they don't, like, they're not going to have a favor of it or whatever. I have a blood token for blood type harvester coming um, to make it so they're gaining, like, positive cards on those exchanges, which is where I think Inti is best as far as, like, that effect, is that they're turning a card into something that has to be a card this turn. It's like they're never going to get that card back. They're only going to stay neutral on it. Um, and, like, while... It is important to, like, and and given this is only talking about turn two, I think that especially when it, the games slog out, like, it's better to give avoid giving them the, the choice on, like, turn four or turn six mm-hmm. or whatever, because at that point, it's going to be more important to hit the cards that they're going to need to operate, right? If they, like, have a random, you know, Bloodhead Harvester or land or whatever, and, like, they really need a Croxa, then you don't want to give them one more card at the Croxa, but... When the hands are still developing, you don't want to. You don't know necessarily what they need. They might not even know what they need, or they might just like it might be fine enough that they're willing to take the risk, and it's better for them to to be growing this into anyway, right? There's like all of these possibilities. Um, but like I think that as much as the velocity of digging through deck faster, like if they it. I think it is different if you know the context their deck has a lot of Croxas. Because it's more likely that they're going to not care about having discarded the Croxa versus casting it. Because they're actually fine with effectively gaining two mana in not having to have cast the Croxa in the first place. Um, towards casting it. Mm-hmm. But outside of things like that that they want to get in the graveyard anyway, I think that they're exposing themselves to a risk of going down a card, which is much more impactful than necessarily improving their hand. Especially when you haven't cast something like a Thoughtseize um on turn one or like you know you don't know what what's going on in their hand Mm -hmm. because you like you don't have that information when you're making the decision and and while they do if they do and their hand is good then they don't discard at all and then you can kill it and you've gained you gain information based on what they're discarding too your next plays can be informed by okay they discarded a land perhaps they do have a lot of lands in hand and I want to make sure to prioritize answering the next threat rather than developing my own and like seeking to trade or like maybe they discarded a removal spell and it's like, okay, maybe they have more removal spells and land. So I should lead on fate or like lead on graveyard trespass or enforce them to two for on themselves rather than, you know, a, a more important threat or play smuggler's copter rather than my inti um, and leave up fatal push or, or whatever it is, because I don't want them to get the mana exchange on their turn of, you know, with like fatal push on tap. I- right. So, Hmm. It, there's there's a lot that it's a very very nuanced position and it's really yeah. funny because it's just it's just two very standard cards now in the red black deck yeah. and it's <laughs> just turn two 
Yeah. Um, which I, was something really great about Magic and great about there being so many new cards that are seeing play right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this could probably be its own, like, you know, uh, like, patron episode of, of, like, really breaking it out. And I would love to, like... Like, I'm glad we're getting deep into it. Yeah, I feel like it's something where until we like now we're having to get to more detail and nuance, right? We need to yeah. be like, okay, what deck lists are we talking about? The context starts to really matter. And I think in the RC, right where it's open deck lists, the context was all there um, in all those matches. And I think in, when they were jamming against each other, they knew their their seventy fives too. But uh, it's just something to think about. You know, like I, I found that having that conversation and really breaking it down with with them, and then also with other people in my Airbnb. Uh, it was like a lot of them had not considered just the actual mechanics of play. And I think it's really good to do that. And I, that's why I wanted to share it. So, yeah, I, I don't want to delve. I mean, if you want to, we can. I, I will say one thing I meant to say earlier, and you kind of mentioned again, uh, and it reminded me is I think there's a little bit of sign of one, I can figure out what's going on. And uh, two, the NT might be a show of weakness on turn two. So, NT, I think I think that in I understand that you know this, but just for listeners, NT triggers even if it's not the one attacking, right? And so a play like Copter is typically better uh, in these kind of Rakdosy matchups, right? Because it's like a thing that dodges all the kill spells. You can like play NT, get some value, right? Um, or like you know you can play like a Blood Tithe Harvester, which applies a little bit more pressure, and then you know like gets bigger quicker with NT. So like I I almost think like NT is the worst thing you could play on turn two, and you know, like in my mind's eye, I'm imagining like, okay, I'm sitting across from Abe. I picked up Jarvis's deck and, you know, Abe's playing the deck two or whatever. We're playing the same deck. And I play NT on two and Abe goes land go. And the first two turn, like my turn one and Abe's turn one, we did nothing. We just played land drops. Like what kind of hand would Abe keep in the mirror match that like has that going on? And once again, there is a amount of like, hey, at the RC, we have a mirror and sort of like the context is going on here. Um, but I think it is fair to assume that, like, I could snuff out there is some sort of kill spell. So giving me any sort of choice, I am a little hesitant on outside of, like, extenuating circumstances that deviate from the norm. Does that make sense? Where, like, yeah, I, like, I, I mean, like, I just have too much respect for the average Magic player, maybe. Where, to me, it's just like, well, you just wouldn't keep a hand that does nothing, right? And, like, there's, like, you just, I don't know. Maybe, maybe people would keep multiple Fables and Shieldreds, you know? Um, but I would just think that, like, I would just wouldn't even pull the trigger unless it's like, all right, you know, I'm discarding my second NT that I don't really care about because I know I'm going to play a Fable. And I just want to hit a land drop off the top of my deck because I want to make that land. And if I hit anything else, it's plus value. And my Fable is a strong card for smoothing and getting through the mid-game as well. And so I'll develop it later, you know? So I'm a little hesitant about this i stand by i think it is good to think about i think there's a lot of nuance to it and i would love to talk about it more in the future especially with like i would be really interested to see what ginger thinks about this in the aggregate without i was gonna say yeah we might need to rope yeah a patreon episode um and i also we're gonna blow we could just blow up magic twitter for a bit uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was gonna say we should definitely tweet this actually like i yeah like i actually have the cards like i might just like create a video like this is it. You know, I had a conversation with a friend. What do you think is the optimal play here? You know, because um, I think it's really yeah. interesting. And I think, mm-hmm. I think one thing to what you're saying about like the context of the hands is that I think as the player on the draw, like if, if we're playing Rakdos Mirror on the draw, me having a Bone Crusher Giant there, like if my hand is like Bone Crusher Fable, like Copter, 
you know, harvester or whatever, and like three lands. That's a very reasonable hand to keep on the draw. Whereas like on the play, I think it's a show of weakness. Agreed. Right. Like for you to play into on the play is more of a show of weakness. My hand can still be a lot of things. Like me playing copter and your into just means right. If you were to play copter and I play copter, mm -hmm. that's just what it is. You know, I just have stomp. Um, but if you're playing into that's where it starts to starts to open up. And it's a really, really, it's just a really dynamic position. These mid range mirrors are really cool. So yeah, let's, let's loop in ginger. Uh, on Twitter at least, and we'll we'll burn the website down for yeah. And feel free to comment on the YouTube and tweet at us and let us know. Discord, you know, we have the public and the Patreon server. I'm very interested to see what people think about this. All right, Abe, we're 25 minutes in. Uh, this way. Yeah. What did you do for always improving this week? Yeah, I, I, by saying that, now they can't edit any of it out. It has to all stay. <laughs> and so, <laughs> no, but uh, so my always improving this week actually comes from a moment with you where we played this game called Curry Sai, which I believe I am pronunciating correctly. Apologies if I'm not. It is a new game that is like apparently just coming out pretty soon. Uh, and uh, one of our mutual friends, Lukinic, proxied it up. And brought it to the thing, and he's like, "Oh, I can't wait to buy this." So I just had to proxy up before the RC. And you were showing me how to play this game, and you call it Rock Paper Samurai. And for the case of the listeners, it's just a very interesting sort of Rock Paper Scissors esque game with the motif of a samurai. And you kind of play and move your characters on a board with cards, and you all have the same cards minus one, where there's like a unique sort of hero card, as Abe described it to me later. Um, and that, like, you play and your goal is to hit your opponent twice in this Samurai Duel. It is very fun. I, I'm not doing a very good job of selling the funness because I don't want to go into too much detail because I also played the game for, like, four hours for the, later in the day where I proxied <laughs> up with the people I was with and we all started playing, and I could very easily do another 25-minute segment on it, and we can't do that. But basically, the game's very fun. Uh, I will tweet about it whenever it does come out soon. I'm very excited to play it some more. Anyways, I was getting rolled by eight. I mean, I, I think we played for about an hour, uh, Abe, and before I won my first game, which was nine games, and um, other people tagged in and played some, and they kind of picked up a little quicker, and I just couldn't get it. And I, I will say, in my in my defense, I think that even if the game had been more clear and we hadn't been like playing with a proxied version, I don't think I would have got it in the first like five or six games, just like knowing myself. I do think I spewed a game or two where I clearly remember thinking. I did everything right, but somehow I didn't hit Abe. I don't understand this game. <laughs> like, how am I always whiffing on him? But uh, there, it was a learning moment, and I asked you sort of like, hey, how, like, uh, I think I said, like, if you were to give me actionable feedback on how to improve, what would you tell me? And you described it to me as a fighting game. You know, you're like, imagine it like it's Smash or Street Fighter, and we're talking about neutrals and whiffs and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, and then... It was funny. You said, I think I'm going to lose now, uh, which I don't know if you were serious or not when you said it. But then I beat you back to back. I was like, okay, I got to go. I've got to change and do stuff. But, you know, I ended up playing more and I was like actually able to play. But like as soon as you told me that, the whole game just clicked instantly. And the always improving moment was relearning something I knew about myself, but had just maybe gotten too confident or forgotten or wasn't applying the situation that I should apply when I'm struggling to learn something is that I'm a very visual person and I'm someone who understands things when related to other things. Like even if it doesn't make perfect sense, like the analogy isn't one-to-one, -one, if I can frame something out of context or make it visual, I understand it so much better. So when it was just cards with words, I couldn't understand what was going on. But once Abe just told to me, it's like, oh, it's like Street Fighter and you know, I'm dashing in and uppercutting. It's like, 
oh, and like once he told me that like the three special cards are like your hero, right? Like you'd play Ryuk different than you would play Chun-Li. It was like, that makes perfect sense. And as soon as I got that, the whole game opened up to me, you know? Um, and that was like just a really good always improving moment for me of like, one, you know, um, like knowing the way I visually learn, but two, also framing things in the context that I kind of know for them, even if like, you know, maybe if I'm struggling with something, I should try to think like, how is this similar to something else I already know about, you know? So uh, that was my always improving moment. Lateral thinking, baby. It works. It's true. Awesome. Well, I did think I was going to lose, by the way. I, I was like, oh, no. I'm definitely worse at fighting games than you. So I'm <laughs> <laughs> I, I was really glad that I, I too because it like wasn't a fluke or whatever. Like, I was talking on the way out. I was like, I'm so glad that I too owed like after our, like he told me or whatever, so that I can I can sleep knowing it wasn't a fluke. That I actually understood a little bit. And maybe <laughs> if we kept going, Abe would adapt. You know, like I don't think I just it'd be undefeated my way. But I I knew that it wasn't a fluke. That's all I knew. You know, yeah. I understood, and that that was high 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 dopamine moment for Mason. Yeah, uh, credits can roll. You can go on to the next episode, but yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> and then I blew on Rog's mind later in the day. But that's a different story for a different <laughs> time. Anyway, I was I played against someone else, a side story. I played against someone else. Uh, I was teaching them. And I lost like the first three games against them. And then I started kind of winning. And I said the download's complete. And I won my first game against Honorog. And it was like a midnight or whatever. We're all like talking a little smack. And I go, Honorog's download was like a megabyte. It was pretty quick. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and he like just took the biggest drink of water when I said that. <laughs> it, was, it was very funny. This game is very fun. Uh, I can't wait for it to come out. Anyways. On to the main topic for today's episode, which is the RC in Atlanta and Pioneer going forward. Um, if you missed it over the last couple of weeks, totally understandable. It's the holidays. The RC in Atlanta this past weekend happened, which apparently, Abe, was the highest attended invite-only Magic Tournament of all time. It's something that we have now competed in. Um, and it was a huge shakeup. You know, uh, we had the Copter Unban the appraiser ban and the Karn ban that we talked about on the podcast just two weeks ago. Players came in there, and on Sunday night, Monday morning, the world really woke up to the Amalia combo. And a lot of things changed, but before we get into that, I do want to talk a bit about our prep. And I'll sort of start first here and then pass on to you. I worked with some people. I, I like talked a little bit with you, and I talked a little bit with, like, I mean, I talked a, a little bit with Jesse, but a lot with Bob and Cheese. Because Bob and Cheese was sort of the person that kind of like was the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't know how your thoughts on Amalia went. Um, for what's worth, I ended up playing Amalia in the tournament. Um, but like Bob is someone who does have like a tendency to like those kind of decks, but won't really like endorse things unless he thinks it's actually good. And um, Bob was very helpful at like crystallizing his thoughts as to why he thought the deck was good. And why he thought the strengths of it were and sort of his learnings from playing were very helpful. And just talking to him about like why you're doing these things, what are the strengths, what are the weaknesses was all very big and helpful for me. But I also, besides that, worked with a bunch of people from coaching who we had like a testing group together and all worked together, uh, which was a really fun and cool experience. Uh, you know, shout out to the Frog Squad. But basically that was my preparation for the event. 
And, you know, I was really happy with Mono Green up until Sunday morning. I thought I was going to play Mono Green. I think the Mono Green Devotion deck, not Ramp, but still like the deck we played of old, just with some Vivians and Ulvenwald oddities and a real sideboard, is a very reasonable and strong deck in Pioneer. It is very bad against a Malia combo, which is a really rough place to be. But I think that deck is a totally reasonable deck. And had a Malia combo not been a huge part of the format, I would have been very happy to play it. But ultimately ended up switching to a Malia and just grinding a bunch, figuring out sort of sideboard plans for the first uh, two or three days until Wednesday. And then spent basically all of Wednesday thinking about how I wanted to play the games, traveled to the RC on Thursday, and then locked in my deck pretty early on Friday morning. You know, everyone was kind of going around talking and stuff. And I made one slight change, but besides that, felt pretty good about stuff. And basically was like, okay, the whole room seems to be like, acknowledging Amalia is real. I will like play the extra removal spell on my sideboard for the mirror and I'll play the extra skyclave in my main for things like main deck craft diggers cage that I played against and things of that nature uh which weren't good enough by the way I beat all the main deck hate cards crazy how these things happen but um that was my preparation Abe what about yours yeah so I was actually in a very similar boat as you leading up until uh Sunday I was like you know from the time where the you know the uh, ban announcement happened, um, and Copper was unbanned. I started by playing some Copper decks, but I wasn't really impressed by many of the ones I was playing, especially like the Rakdos Copper decks that hadn't started playing a bunch of NTs and leaning into being a little more aggressive and were still kind of taking shape. And it wasn't really what I necessarily wanted to be doing, so I was like, okay, well, what about green? Because green's mana engine is still the like most powerful, like one of the most powerful things you can do in the format. And I think it's going to fall off of people's radar. It could be really well positioned. And I was very, very comfortable with the deck. I felt like I was doing um, doing well with it. Had even improved my matchup against things like Blue-White. Um, and still very good against Rakdos. And the aggro decks I like, was able to have more plans for. Because you had a bit, more, a bit of a sideboard. And I was like, okay. As long as, like, outside of maybe the Amalia combo matchup, I'm, like, pretty good. So, But, like, I didn't expect that deck to be anywhere. You know, I don't really expect it to do very well. Um, it kind of felt like a deck that would get pieced apart by, um, like, a Rakdos deck uh, that was prepared for it and had a bunch of removal. I thought it would be a little more fragile than it was. And then, yeah, Sunday, uh, you know, the showcase happens. The deck is everywhere. It's obviously um, really good. And I started playing some with that list, and I was incredibly impressed, uh, as, as you were amazed. And I think Bob also... Um, you know, I didn't talk to him uh, about it, but I think I was watching some friends test and queuing to him, and I also saw him on Twitter saying how good the deck was, and when I played it, I had similar feelings. It felt, like, really, really strong, and I also had just no time. Like, my, my real life was getting in the way. Uh, like, between work, I, I like, just started... Um, there was, like, you know, work holiday parties. I just started a new uh, role... Uh, at the, the place I work, so I was like moving to a different location. There's a lot of getting settled. I didn't have time to put cards together. Um, I had gotten the COVID booster on Saturday and like Monday. Uh, for those of you who missed me on the show last week, uh, on Monday I like had a pretty big headache after getting off work and like just couldn't do the show. And then I slept for like 12 hours. That was an entire day of like testing any new ideas or you know really trying to get into the data that I just didn't have because my whole day was just working and sleeping. So it was like a lot of these things happened that made it, by the time I decided on, okay, am I going to play one of my fallbacks, which um, 
was Convoke. I had uh, to the team the testing with Sanctum Wall for uh, for the Pro Tour, and we had a group for the RC as well um, to start working on. And so uh, I was like, okay, well, the we have a fallback uh, Boros Convoke list that seems pretty good. I got all the cards together for that. Um, and then I was kind of trying to find the Amalia cards. Ultimately, couldn't find the front of the ranks. Hadn't played much of like the mirrors one step ahead trying to like get into the arms race of that as well as thinking about all the other things going on like you know do i want to play uh night the the like night of dust whatever that makes it you can't gain life for the mirrors you know do i want to play skyclave do i want to play both c note scouts are in my deck what, what are the different options here that was stuff i had not had any time to really get into so i felt like ultimately um Rather than stress myself out scrambling for cards, I was going to, um, you know, focus on helping my friends by just jamming the matches that they needed to play um, against the deck, learning it for that reason, um, you know, kind of giving them my thoughts, but just play a fallback like Convoke that I felt pretty good about um, and, and, and sticking to that. So uh, probably, beca- and this is something that like, I forget who said it, I think it would have been like, someone talking about like the pro tour where it's like, you don't like you wouldn't trust someone who's not playing to like pick your deck for you uh, or whatever. Cause like they're not, they don't have the same skin in the game and like you shouldn't cause you're the one who's on the decision. I didn't have the same skin in the game as like just everyone else around me. Um, and it showed cause like if it were me who was not qualified for Chicago, I definitely would have like, you know, spent the extra however much time calling up every person I've ever known try to find copies of Return to Ranks to play the Amalia deck. I think it was just by far the best deck to play for the tournament. Um, but I, rather than doing that, gave myself the the grace of, of resting and, like, you know, being okay with playing a fine deck that I thought could do well um, and just spending more time focusing on helping my, my playgroup and uh, the people I'm working with rather than necessarily, like, looking out for me. So that's kind of my process. It wasn't, like, the best, but there was just a lot going on in my life. Especially with, I was really, really prepared for green. I'd started testing like a lot of different plans and different builds for different forms of the metagame and solving different problems. But the Amalia combo matchup was just not one that I thought could be solved one way that was good. So I was like, okay, well, hopefully that doesn't happen. And then it was immediately the next thing that happened. Like, I think it was like Friday night. I was set to be like, okay, I'm going to get the green cards I need. We'll be good. And then uh, Sunday morning, it was no longer good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sucks. I, it was great. I think you brought up like great reasons why. If you want to talk about that quickly, like just the Cavalier Storm Engine, as like a part of a deck, really is like I think the thing that people are underestimating. Yeah, I think like Karn was obviously really good, and it did a lot of collateral damage. And it's a card that just always, I mean, like they said in the ban announcement, it gives it makes the deck doesn't have to have a sideboard. Um, it incentivizes you to not even have a sideboard. You just have all these one-ofs in your sideboard that you have through all three games, which is pretty frustrating to play against. It's a card that only gets better as more cards are printed because they're not going to stop printing cards with card-type artifact. Um, and it also just enabled this kind of unintuitive infinite combo that was fidgety, and it was kind of miserable to play against because it did the same exact thing every time, and it felt unfair. But, uh, you know... The rest of the deck enabled it to do that. You can go infinite because you have, like, 16 Devotion in play by turn, like, four. Not because, necessarily, Karn is on the battlefield. Um, 
I think that it would be good for people to remember that. That, like, the actual thing that's fundamentally really strong and broken there is that between, you know, Old Growth Troll, Cavalier of Thorns, Eight Llanowar Elves, Nykthos, you can generate, and Kiora, you can generate a lot more mana and see a lot more cards than your opponents can very quickly, and it's difficult to answer. To the that, like, Cavalier plus Storm plus Nykthos, it, it, like, you can put one of your 30 power in play and uh, with, like, Uvenwald Oddity, which gives all of your creatures plus one plus one in haste for a modest, you know, 11-man investment. And Trample. Seven Transform forecast. Uh, and Trample, yeah. yeah which is, you can uh, just huge. still kill on yeah. kill on turn four if you hit a little bit better than you had to previously. But, you know, a lot of decks still... The, the fail rate is still so high on Mono Green of, I played a bunch of strong creatures off of Landor Elves and attack. Like, people were playing these Stompy decks right after the bans that seemed you know pretty okay um but why not just play the same concept but you also still do the really powerful thing of having storm the festival and cavalier of thorns is still a really really strong card uh, it's a card that stonewalls entire archetypes um like they just can't push through a five six and just attacking with huge green creatures is still so good and having like there's, there's just a lot going on. Kiora still generates a lot of card advantage. Cavalier Storm still generates a lot of card advantage and a lot of mana advantage. Um, and you still have a lot of grind to you. And you're still bigger than a lot of the aggressive decks just by putting Old Growth Troll or Pelucranos or whatever into play. So all these things really led me to be drawn to Mono Green. That mana engine is still really strong. I think... I genuinely think that if not for the Amalia deck exactly, it would have been like one of the better decks to choose for this weekend. I think I, that I matchup agree. was just so bad that um, it kind of takes it out. Like, And if you look at like Frank Carson's matchup matrix, we might get into talking about a little bit um, later in the episode. Like the Boros Convoke deck had a 20% win rate against Amalia, and there, that meant there was just no shot that with how well Amalia did, it was ever going to be like the winner at the end of the tournament in my mind. Like, it was going to have a really hard time. It could have its draws, it did it, but it's just such a bad position to be in if you really need to have... A, like, in the winner's metagame, it was going to be in such a bad place. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree 100%. I, I really think green would have been a great choice if not for the Amalia deck. Um, I think it, is, it moves the needle way too much. And, you know, we'll get into this in just one second here. I, as we talk about now with conversion rates, but, like, I was talking to people, I was like, yeah, I think Amalia is going to be, you know, 9 to 13% a day one, and, like, Unironically, 30% of day two. I think this deck is very good, and I think a lot of strong players all came to the conclusion that they should play Amalia, you know, and uh, they converted, you know, and it ended up being actually the numbers where I believe it was like uh, 9% of day one and then 32% of day two. Um, sorry, 32% conversion rate, excuse me, misspoke, um, which is huge, and the sec it's second best only to Azorius Control for decks that have over 50 pilots playing it in the RC. Um, a few decks with 15 pilots had a better conversion rate than both uh, of these decks, but for the most part, Amalia was just the second best conversion rate deck in Blue White Control, which we'll get into a little bit here soon as well, which is the, you know, the winning deck of the tournament and the deck that converted the best. So uh, I think, you know, this deck is really strong and you know, I pulled heaven and earth down. Like Abe was talking about, you know, he, had, he didn't have the skin in the game. I did, and I was like, give me these return to the ranks, you know, <laughs> please someone find them, you know. And so I was able to get the deck together. Um, 
I feel very happy about it. I think the deck is very strong. And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, what's going to hold in the future with Pioneer, who's, what things are going to happen. But to me, I get very similar vibes that I had with Green sort of early on, where it's like, I might just be playing this until something, like, so improves me it's not playable. You know what I mean? Because, like, the core shell of the deck is so strong and the game plan is so good and i think there are a lot of weird and interesting directions to take things and you know i posted a weird luca list on twitter that has Yorion, but i don't think you need to do crazy stuff like that to even take it. i think there's just different ways to build the deck you know brendan decandia someone who i worked with for the lorcana invitational and now a friend i played against him in round nine of the event and he had no gilded gooses three thraven inspectors and a very different sideboard than most people end up converting to the pro tour and, you know, brought up how, like, Thraven Inspector opens up new combo lines where you're sort of Amalia comboing and you find your Corda calling and then you can pop your clue to draw the core to find your Dina to then, you know, kill them. Uh, so, like, there's a lot of different and other stuff along those lines as well. So, it is a lot of different ways to take this deck. We saw players find Knight Aaron of Eos as a way to sort of, you know, maybe trim down on cards like Kalita Company. Dodge cards like Graft Digger's Cage, play to the board quicker, have a better beatdown plan. I think this deck is very, very good, and I, I do think it is like a serious player in the metagame. And, you know, I was talking to Ginger on Tuesday on his stream, Abe, and he was saying how, you know, he thinks the deck is garbage and is unplayable. And it's probably the most, like, diametrically opposed I ever felt to Ginger. And it was just a moment where I was like, well, I really don't want to say much because I'm working with other people. But like if I was by myself, I would have been like, I think you're off your rocker. Like, this deck is just very clearly good. Like it, it, at worst, I think it is like a tier one deck in Pioneer. Like that is <laughs> where I believe it to be. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I get kind of Grease Fang vibes of like, and I'm, it's obviously like they're both ads index or whatever. So like, that's not what I mean. I mean that I think this is a deck where people have not yet figured out what it means to respect it. Um, and it definitely cropped up out of nowhere. And it was a really, really short timetable for people to decide which side of the fence they're landing on in terms of am I playing this or am I trying to beat it? Um, and if I'm trying to beat it, what does that even mean? Because now I have more tools available to me uh, because of things being unbanned and format is so wide and everyone's deck isn't. You know, could be an entirely new place. There's entirely new rules of the format to be playing by, and people don't even know all of them. You know, we just spent 20 minutes, 25 minutes talking about turn two of Arachnos Mirror because of new cards. It's it's a very, very new time for the format. And so I think that, uh, you know, whether or not the deck stays at this level of success depends a lot on how well the other decks can adapt, knowing now what these lists are looking like and as things kind of coalesce to a um you know just a more standard set of builds and you know the answers and game plans get more standardized too like what happens there uh is has yet to be seen but overall the deck is incredibly impressive um it plays really really well it plays well by the rules of the format um, in the same way that Convoke does, where it's just playing a lot of materials to the board early that's not necessarily worth trading cards like Fatal Push for um, because they don't quite do a lot, but then using those as mana for um, like Court of Callings for their combo pieces or uh, you know Density for Return to the Ranks. like All of it just plays really well together and is hard for a lot of decks to clean up. And like 
when all said and done, you also just have like your best draws can go faster than the rest of the format can handle, and you're resilient, and your like slower draws because your deck is resilient and gains a lot of life, kind of beat out a lot of other things. So, I do think there's a bit of concern for me about like all the stuff where games end in draws like a decent amount, um, like way more than you ever would have thought would have happened coming into the tournament. <laughs> um, it would be having like random draws in the middle of, of things having to make an announcement about how the draws work uh, at the start of the tournament was, was pretty interesting. I've never played an environment like that, but you know, as far as it goes, the deck is obviously here to stay and, uh, and may even be the deck to beat for a while now, even though it wasn't what won the tournament ultimately. And I think win rate wise, like, Azorius might have pushed it out. The conversion on a deck, just for being new, we'll, we'll see if it can settle and if people start to find the answers um, to, to shut it down, but like, I, I think if anything, open decklist makes this makes the deck worse. Um, and seeing it in closed decklist environments where people can't know to keep hands that interact with it, um, or, right, their lockdowns are good, uh, right, all, all these things that they might have been, like not benefited from because they're presenting threats, uh, and especially threats that play through answers, not with like timing or anything, but with like raw power, um, you know, recursion and, and things like that. It, it's going to be interesting to see how that deck, uh, where that deck lands, and how people can adapt. Yep. Let's talk about blue white control next, because not only was this the deck that won the tournament, there's a lot of conversation about it. Um, you know, blue white control. I was sort of joking with people was like my ultimate, like throw up my hands. I can't find a Molly. I don't feel good about anything. I'm just going to play it. And, you know, I think Blue-White does get a slight, slight buff from Open Decklist, right? Where, you know, if we're playing a closed Decklist tournament, Abe and you and I are looking at a hand and we've got, you know, two temporary lockdowns that make disappear in four lands on the play. Maybe that's, you know, maybe you keep it, who knows? But in Open Decklist, I look down, my opponent's playing Amalia, and I'm like, heck yeah, let's go. You know, versus like I look down, they're playing Lotus Field. I'm like, all right, let's find the Dovin's Vetoes in my deck. So I think between that small buff and a lot of things changing the format for Blue White's favor in the form of kind of, you know, Rakdos changing the way it has, it's built, uh, the Amalia deck coming up in real fashion and being a deck that sort of naturally walks into a lot of problems you had. Um, I ended up being 2 1 against Blue White this weekend, but I think I got like very fortunate and play out of my mind to get to that point so like you know that is like not the norm and i think this matchup is i mean i think this deck sorry this deck is very good and we've seen some very interesting and i think smart innovations you know some players went towards yorion some players went down on things like teferi um we saw roger suleiman go down to one teferi hero dominaria one dream trawler with the idea being no one can kill a dream trawler that doesn't have supreme verdict you know and just like Rakdos doesn't have a way to actually kill this card. And them lowering their deck to become like an empty deck and to sort of change with the metagame has had some real knock-on effects. Even though we did see this normal-ish Rakdos before this sort of stuff do very well and top eight the event, it was definitely, I think, more the minority than the majority. Yeah, I think like Blue White, like you said, I think benefited from a lot of the decks playing more into what Blue White's good at. I think the open deck list stuff helps a little bit but also i think that get lost is like an unsung hero here where 
that card is just such a strong catch-all. Um, and blue-white really needed things they could keep hands around and turn that like on turn two it could just answer a problem or could answer a problem for cheap. Uh, and that card like has really impressed me. I think before I played like Fate Flabs and Sensor things, like giving your opponent actual clues and stuff, like ways to get cards back was a negative proposition. It didn't actually kill literally everything. Whereas, like, I don't know about you, Mason, but for me, especially playing Convoke, like, I would either have to be taking time off and have a thing in play already against Blue-White to use my Get Lost, like, map tokens, or they would just be like, clean up your board with, like, a, you know, Supreme Verdict you, you play, like, one or two things, okay, I'll Get Lost, your thing that actually matters, now you're going to spend your next turn, like, still not doing anything, I'm going to be able to stick my Teferi or my Wandering Emperor and, and like, gain control of the game again. I think there's, like, the the incremental improvements of these removal spells, I think, are starting to add up. And especially the positioning of Temporary Lockdown as one of Blue-White's best cards and one of the better cards in the format for answering not just decks like Amalia Combo or Convoke, but also um, decks like Rakdos in their early starts. Uh, has made a, a pretty big difference. Mm, I agree, hundred percent. And you know, I, I like sort of where the deck is at relative to you know still being blue white. I think still having some similar problems, but I do think the format is in a position where right now it is kind of nice for the deck. I think it is pretty reasonable. I'm excited to see sort of what happens at the pro tour. Excuse me. In just two months, you know, Abe's going to be playing in it. Um, I'm excited to sort of see his debrief. I'm going to be at uh, the MC. I'm sorry, the MagicCon uh, in PT Chicago. So I'm really excited to see what y'all bring a lot of time between now and then because, you know, we're hitting into standard season and just like two weeks from now, a lot's going to change up in that time. And I'm really excited to see sort of what the pressure of the Pro Tour cooks when it comes to this deck. Um, I do sort of want to talk a bit about Rakdos NT versus Rakdos Mid because we had spent some time earlier in the show sort of hinting and going over that. But Abe... What sort of happened to the Rakdos decks over this last two weeks? Yeah, so there's kind of been like a lot of a lot of different directions people have tried to take the Rakdos decks. Uh, it's gone from people kind of playing these more, I don't know, sort of from like aggro builds of of it with like inties, and I've seen some people even go as far as playing like some one drops. Um, you know, a bunch of copters cutting down on things like shoulderids or archmen to the draws to play just more croxes. Um, you know, fewer bone crusher giants, fewer graveyard trespassers, really leaning like like leaning down the mana curve of the deck um, to make it play a lot more in the early game and lean into how good a smuggler's copter is versus you know what we had seen previously, which is a deck that was trying to play the game. Um, in a more attrition-y way with, like, you know, maybe some Reckoner Bank Busters, thing, things to give advantage and be like, okay, we'll trade off cards early and then I'll have the best things to emulate or I'll have the more resource, like, more resources as the game goes on and that will weather you out. Um, so, kind of from a, a large overview, it's it's really just started to see this uh, these different camps forming around what are the cards that are most important to be enabling I think especially the synergy between um, Smuggler's Copter and Inti 
where you get to like copter loot. Uh, the loot generates a card off the card you're discarding as well as drawing you a card to replace it. So like kind of drawing one and a half cards. Um, like if you know if you loot away a land and then hit a land, you just got a land for free and the card you drew off the loot, which is just incredibly powerful. Um, and also means your deck just has more two drops in it. So uh, you're you're cutting down on the what was it Ari Lax called it the the classic mid range problem. Of like all your cards are bad, and in this case they all cost three mana. Is like well now, they all cost two mana. So my deck's way better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you have anything more you want to add around around that outside of like, I, I think I might have brushed over it, but the Croxa stuff is something that we talked about a little bit where uh, Andrew Ellen Bogan had a really been a proponent of playing just many Croxas because you do so much discarding, and also uh, Shieldred is not the card it used to be as the games have become a lot more convinced they end a lot faster. It's not really about, okay, let's sit around and like wait for this thing to kill you, even though it's a good card. Um, about things like you know, green or a lot of the aggro decks, but with like a combo deck being the way that the game's ending or, uh, you know, sweepers being good against you because you have more creatures now, uh, like even if it's blue-white, something like shoulder isn't necessarily the best. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's not an issue that you want to add. No, I, I, that's a good point I was going to mention. Um, that's not anything to add. I, I would say that one thing to think about Croxa is that Croxa is your four drop. And what happens a lot with Croxa is it actually just gets rummaged away or looted away. You know, Fables, Blood, Empty, Looter Scooter. You have a lot of ways to just move through your deck, right? And uh, we talked about velocity, and maybe that's something that will come up in an episode sooner than later. But, um, you can move through your deck pretty quickly, and the Croxa also lines up pretty well with a lot of the decks we're talking about, you know? Like, uh, I think it is strong against Arclight Phoenix. People tell me, like, oh, you're going to discard the Phoenix, but, like, unless that exact interaction happens, getting a card out of them, especially when they're maybe lower on cards and getting something like a Treasure Cruise can be really important. It's a big body that's good. Phoenix is, you know, a very strong deck. We'll get into in a second here. Against the Amalia deck, there's a weird play pattern where they often want to hold their strongest card to play last, right? A lot of decks in Magic this day, these days lead on their strongest cards, right? Or maybe their second strongest. Amalia typically tries to present, you know, as many dinky dorks as possible. And this is why cards like Go Blank, I think, are actually good against the Amalia deck because, you know, hitting the graveyard is nice. And if you're applying pressure and you just clean up that plus mind rot them, that's actually kind of effective. Uh, you know, you need to have pressure, but like that is a plan that can work. So Croxa does a good job of fighting over those sort of things. And just being a play that you can also do on turn two means that you won't fall behind against things like Amalia, where I, I played against Rakdos a lot this past weekend and I beat all the non like NT Zoomer uh, Rakdos decks. I didn't have a bunch of Croxas and stuff. And everyone who was playing like traditional controlling, it was so easy to run them over. And in part, a lot of people died and they tapped out for a Shieldred. And, you know, and I just went, like, you know, voice into Amalia or, like, you know, end of turn Coco into something. Or, like, you know, just Coco itself on the stuff. So there, there's a lot of good punishes there. Um, and I think, like, making your deck more condensed and lower mana value sometimes puts you at disadvantage in the mirror. But I think the rest of the format should push the uh, the Rakdos players who are getting an edge in the mirror by still having Shieldreds and more expensive cards out of the format or force them to adapt dramatically in some other regard to make it not be a problem that makes you have to go back to those children builds. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Like, I even found in my testing that 
like Archfiend of the Dross because of the way the games had sped up in the format. Archfiend of the Dross was mark like remarkably better against a lot of the decks I was worried about than uh, than Shouldered was. And I think that speaks a lot to just how much closing the game really matters right now compared to how the Rakdos decks previously were like content with attritioning the games to uh to the finish line and then being like, okay, well, now that I finally have you run out of cards, let me cast my Bone Crusher Giant or animate my Den of the Bugbear or whatever it is and start eking the You can't really eat games out anymore. And uh, that's meant that cards like Kruxa and um and uh and Archfiend are, are really shining and especially because of the fact right combo decks uh, you know, blue white decks are always it's hard to run those out of resources, and you can't really. And like, even the sacrifice decks, that a lot of decks just got a lot stronger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I agree. Really quickly, Phoenix. Um, I'm really curious to know what your thoughts on Phoenix are. I think Phoenix is a very good deck in the format. It might be the like the deck that we know the best how to build for the most part. Like the maybe the final version of Phoenix isn't much different when it comes to the main deck than it is now. And a lot of it has to do with sideboard stuff. But I feel like Phoenix is good. And I kind of felt like Phoenix was just going to be an awkward position because it was so, uh, one, obviously good and going to get uh, some respect towards it. But two, it's a Malia matchup is not that good. Uh, I, for, for what it's worth, if you're at home and you think that like one for winning the Amalia deck is going to just beat it, that is not how the games play. Amalia with Ward 3 life is going to essentially just need to do like about 11 damage to kill you. It's pretty easier than to present an Amalia about three times across the game that you have to kill. And you can do that, but you need to have the life. You need to have a clock. So I think between that, it's obvious target and getting some splash hate, you know, uh, between Graveyard Hate, uh, Goblinks going up as being both good against the Amalia deck and the uh, Phoenix deck, and pretty reasonable against Blue White and Lotus Field. So... I, I thought this deck was a deck that, you know, we're going to see probably do better going forward, but underperformed this weekend and had me off it pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, like, some really good things happened to the deck, like Picklock Prankster, and uh, I think also the ability to play Torch the Tower in the builds that do play it. Uh, like, I know that Jerry was really high on like kind of a Drake's deck rather than a Phoenix mm-hmm. deck because it got to play a lot of these things that were answers to the issue of okay well i you know i fire impulse or lightning axe all your stuff um but then you return to the ranks it so it doesn't matter um torch the tower and in his case what's the thunder after i think do a good job of mitigating that and i also think this was a weekend where for because of the amalia deck just soft counter magic spell pierces if you can play them like those were pretty good in that matchup if your deck was able to be presenting a clock so you could still you still have draws where like if you just played a Lender Shredder on two and then had like your counter magic and the right mix of removal, you could get under or rather in this case fly over um, the Amalia deck's plan. But if their deck was built to be able to withstand that or they had good plans. Yeah. I think even the addition of one of the first bullets to the deck being uh Jarena Dauntless General, just like as a way to cord for exiling the graveyard kind of speaks to the fact that that matchup can be scary for, um, for Amalia, like when you think about the mix, like what really matters, right? Pressure on their life total, as well as ways to disrupt the combo repeatedly. Um, the Phoenix deck, if it can get its Phoenixes going or get a Shredder going, uh, and then has it has 
what feels like an endless amount of lightning axes, you know, fiery impulses, uh, things to like break up the combo. But you're right, the life does cost you. And so it really like has to be your fastest draws. But if you're able to then play a build that can counter, uh, you know, the cocos and the cords with some some efficiency, now it's less of that that you need, um, and you're taking less of that damage because they're taking longer to find those cards, finding the Amalias or finding, uh, you know, whatever piece it is they're they're looking for, and overall, like I think against the rest of the format too, Phoenix. Right before the Copter Unban, before the Karn Ban, before uh, the Discover cards, before Lost Cast and Mixalon at all. I think the talk of the format was really that Phoenix was one of the best decks, if not the best deck. Like, Convoke started to give it a run for its money, and the rest of the format around it also was kind of that way. But it was one of the top two or three decks, uh, if not number one. And so to see it still here doesn't surprise me much at all. Nice. Well, really quickly here before we wrap up, I want to give us each a chance to talk quickly and discuss with one another some decks that maybe surprised us. Um, I'll go first. I think the Quintorius combo deck I thought was still pretty good, but a group of players found Release, the, release to the Winds, and I think that is a big upgrade. So Release to the Winds is two and a blue. Uh, you exile target permanent on the battlefield, and its control and may cast that spell for free. This is a card you've seen in Historic with Valky. Um what I like with this is you get to play Spark Double in this as your Quintorius go down the chain, and it doubles as kind of a fog or a way to sort of protect your combo uh, if you build up a lot of mana. And those players, I think, did the really smart thing that I kind of thought was obvious, but then people told me it wasn't, and I just I should have done the work, which is a moment on me, of just, like, take the Appraiser, like, Torrential Gear Hulk and Treasure Spell backup plan that lets you go fast and put it in the uh, Quintorius deck. The Leyline Binding Ramp stuff is fine, but it is not as strong as that. Uh, I think on average, because I think the speed is good. I will say the, like, consigned to Oblivion rampy version of the deck, I think has some merit as well. But I think the format needs to be much slower. And I think Gwentorius is just a little too slow right now to consistently be a good deck. But it did perform very well. And I will say, I know some of these players who found the release to the wind. They're in a different part of Tennessee and Kentucky. And... I know all of them, and they are very strong, and they work together and doing a good job. But um, they were keeping track of the win rate, and a lot of the wins for the Contorious deck actually came from their subgroup, where they, you know, at one point, I want to say the deck had like twenty-one wins uh, in the tournament, and they were sixteen of them. So like the, and they were only half the players who were playing Contorious in the room. So it's not like they were all the players too. You know, it they were half. So there was a lot of people whose maybe builds were dragging down the win rate, and I really think looking at the deck with the eyes of this treasure sub plan and release to the winds and not needing to play a stinky second clone option in the form of clever impersonator really opens the door on this deck. Um, yeah, I, I think it could be very real. So I wanted to just highlight that real quick. Yeah. I also, I mean, the deck that really surprised me was the enigmatic fires deck. Like looking at the, like Frank Carson tweeted out like pretty shortly before recording a, uh, like, metagame and win rate breakdown and i think the fires decks just pretty repeatedly do pretty well and people don't talk about them or play them much but this is not an exception for that like it was good against rakdos it did fine to good against amalia um it's good against phoenix i think its hardest matchup was azorius which people didn't necessarily believe would do as well as it did coming into the weekend mm-hmm. um because that always gets I mean, even on this show, we've like talked about it's like not necessarily the best 
I'm still not a true believer, um, even though it had a great weekend. Uh, I'm not sure how the metagame conditions will do for it, but it's just one of those things where that deck continues to be a really cool puzzle to solve, and the people who are playing it, doing it, are getting rewarded for doing it and, and performing well and having a, a pretty good win rate with it. So it's something where, you know, as I'm preparing for the PT, I'm going to want to spend some hours playing the deck to see if I can figure out if it's something that's right for me or if I should be uh, kind of sticking to where I'm at. Um, compared to something that's safe like Boris Convert that I played where it was good, but just yeah. fine. Yeah, I will say this. You and I both like talked about Bob and Cheese earlier, and Bob has just been banging the Ignamic Fires drum now for like nine months and has consistently done amazing with it. And you and I, you know, we had green before, which I think I think we're on the right side of history when it comes to that. But it might be time to be like, dang, you know, Bob and Cheese kind of doesn't miss that much. It's a name that I think doesn't get enough respect, you know. Bob doesn't get to play as much as other people, like, had to give up a pro tour invite because, you know, has a kid coming and stuff like that. And, you know, puts in a lot of good work and does really well. And, you know, it's funny. Bob, like, plays a lot, uh, you know, like, uh, at night, basically, when he can. But he does play and, like, typically has a good idea of this sort of stuff. And typically, when you, like, look at the time in which Bob tweets about something or talks about something and line up to, like, kind of what the history was there... Bob is right a lot of the time, I think for a lot of the right reasons. You know what I mean? So maybe that's a sign that you and I need to ring-a-ding-ding Bob and Cheese about this deck. Oh, I mean, I mean, I, I just got to say, and this is some, some deep-cut lore that not many were around for, but when I started playing Hammer, mm-hmm. that was Bob and Cheese. That's yeah, you know, like Bob, like Bob, like Bob don't leagues. <laughs> he was like unkillable. Bob don't miss a lot. Yeah, Bob was like, "Hey guys, I keep on bonking everyone." I'm like, "Dang, that's crazy!" And I started doing. I was like, "Hey guys, I'm bonking everyone." So you know, like he he does. I, I think you know, big shout out to him. Like he did qualify the last time I was in Atlanta, and we talked about that on the show a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the first RC that. That there was, um, and then did have to like he did requalify chain a PT and then have to give up his invite, um, mm-hmm. which is like chaining PTs is not easy, and uh, and and it, it respect to him, respect to him. Yeah. That's all we, we can move on, yeah. We can move on. I don't know. I will say this at one point when asking Bob questions, I mentioned earlier, Bob did tell me the Mason method, no one is beating me phase, so I don't sideboard. And which I thought was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like a Discord message in some chat where Bob's like, I haven't sideboarded in like seven matches. I'm undefeated. I don't know. I think my sideboard was kind of bad. Maybe these cards would be good. <laughs> which I thought was very <laughs> funny. And he was just running the 60 card Amalia deck down mid and winning. But anyways, um, what do we think this means for Pioneer and sort of what is your big takeaway from all of this weekend's event? You know, obviously, you're going to be preparing for the Pro Tour. I don't want to really hit you up as you start to really dig deep into that. So this is going to be kind of my last chance to talk to you about this. What are your thoughts going forward? What do you kind of expect? What are you willing to share? Yeah. Uh, what do I think? I think that... The Amalia deck is presenting an entirely new problem to the format and with effectively, and so is Copter, and so is Lost Guy from Ixalan. All these things have changed a lot. The format is very different than it was two weeks ago, very different than it was two months ago. Um, I think it's going to take some time for that to shake out. I think also with people turning 
like people who are qualified for Denver turning their heads towards Denver and the people who are quali- who are you know looking forward to standard season uh, turning their head to standard. It's going to be interesting to see where that innovation comes from. And especially with another set coming between now and the pro tour, um, how much pioneer can change or will change is uh, another question too. So like coming out of it, if I had to play the RC, uh, another RC tomorrow, um, with all the information that's out there, I would put it on people to keep on finding answers to Amalia. I think Amalia is the biggest question mark um, as far as how to beat it uh, out out there in the format. And I think people need to really dig in and and figure that out, Um, which is, I don't think it's undoable. I think it's like pretty, it's pretty safe for now. And I'd feel pretty comfortable being like, okay, let's give it some time when the format, like the best removal spell in the format is Fatal Push. And this is a combo deck around putting CMC two or less, like, or as mana value two or less creatures into play. So that's good. Uh, that That's like a pretty safe thing. It's a thing you can interact with on the board and happens. Finding the ways to beat the cards around that is kind of the next step for everyone else. Um, and I think giving people more than a week to figure that out might yield different results if we like see the event happen again. If we saw the event happen again a month from now, which is kind of why I really miss GPs. Can that be my takeaway from this about Pioneer? I really miss GPs. Because if we had two more of these events of the same size and the same caliber, you know, in the next two, three months, like who knows what we'd see happen uh, with the pressure on the format. Yep. I... I agree 100%. It's going to be really interesting, and hopefully we'll see some stuff in the future. You know, I I have Hopium. You know, maybe it's Copium, though. Um, awesome. Great. Well, that's going to kind of do it for Pioneer uh, and all of this going forward. You know, we're going to shift our eyes towards Standard, towards 2024, towards Modern, and then come back around and see, you know, our boy Abe win the Murder Pro Tour coming up soon enough here. So... That's going to do it for the main topic on this week's episode. Uh, you can ask us questions on the show by coming on Patreon at patreon.com slash ccmtg. And I had one uh, asked by somebody at the RC here, Abe, and we were sort of, you know, getting our episode together really quick here. And the Patreon question I had there was, what was your favorite magic memory from this past weekend? You know, they kind of said, hey, can you ask this one on the show? I was like, sure, let's do it. They're never in the Discord, they said. So... Abe, what was your favorite magic memory from this past weekend? Let's see. My favorite magic memory from this weekend, probably, uh, yeah, it was a good weekend for magic. I would say it was probably getting FOMO from looking at uh, Jonathan Skennick's deck. Mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, he played a Picnic Ruiner, like, Gruel aggro deck is basically like red mono red with some green uh, around the card picnic ruiner from Wildsville Drain, the 2 2 that gets double strike if you have um, if if you have attack with it while you have a power creature power four or greater. So I played like four of those Soul Scar Mage, Monotar Swiss Spear, Kumano Faces Kakazan, uh, Voldaran Thrill Seeker, Collision Colossus, which is a combat trick that is like it's a split card that's one and a red green hybrid deal six to a flying creature 
or green red plus four plus two and trample um and it had monstrous uh raid the plus two plus so and put a monster roll on it on a creature so it was just like a really cool like punk you out combo aggro deck with like using the double strike or using voldar and thrill seeker plus the pump spells to deal a bunch of damage and just the stories from his matches he went 4-0 then 0-4 um losing a bunch of blue white but all the stories in his matches were just really really cool and there was all this like fun thought experience of like okay if i'm playing against the amalia combo deck and i have like a rimrock knight in my hand i can like force them to draw the game and it's like i'm gonna be, i'm gonna to like play it out to try to like put them in position to draw and then like i don't know I'll win. he was like we we're joking before the tournament he was like yeah i'll win the match 2-0 and 3 if i have to like you know like i'll just <laughs> try if i'm losing game one i'll just try to draw it when they try to combo and then like you know if i'm losing a game that's on me so, uh, yeah, it was just a really, really cool to see him build the deck that was so unique um, compared to what a lot of people were doing and for it to look really cool and good. And I'm, that's something else I'm going to probably be, be looking into as well just because I like those kinds of decks. Uh, I hope I hope I see four copies of Picnic Runner registered and you next to Cedric Phillips of the Pro Tour during the decklist profile. That would be... That's a dream come true. That's a dream come true for your boy here. So, you know... Don't don't let that affect your decisions, but that would be sick. I hope it's the right choice. Um, mine, uh, I really actually enjoyed. I I walked. This isn't my favorite memory, but I walked over to like Abe and Sakinik. And Sakinik goes, "Hey, how would you sideboard versus Amalia? And what would your game plan be in the way of approaching the game?" And like hands me this picnic runner deck list. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then we spent like ten minutes talking about like how would we play the games and how would we like and what to do etc cetera, etc cetera. it was a really interesting uh thing because you just hadn't had time to play that many games and so that was fun um one of my favorites though was on friday in the hall i was there to kind of bird lcqs and talk to people and the thing that kept happening was is people would say i have a really good amalia matchup and i would say wow i would love to practice this matchup and then I would beat the tar out of them <laughs> playing Amalia. And... <laughs> In fact, I lost one game across. I'm sorry, I lost uh, two games across multiple things. Um, but by the end of all the, I technically played some more later on where it was like you know like hey this whatever. But uh, you know, like people, especially people with their one for one decks, where they were like, I am going to interact with you or whatever, and then. I will just kill your Amalia, idiot. Like, welcome to the year 2023. It's about to be 2024. Your all-kill spell deck that, like, one-for-ones that doesn't have Wrath is not going to beat my, like, creatures that are one-and-a-half cards of value every time. And it was just, like, eye-opening. And I, like... I think it makes sense, but, like, I watched... Like, I beat a Phoenix player, and he went and bought Tigger's cages and put them in his sideboard. Like, I just beat him up so bad and explained, like, why he couldn't win... And I think he is supposed to cut his phoenixes because they are clunky and bring in graph tigger's cages and some other stuff. But it's just very funny to like basically like put the fear of God in someone and have them be like, <laughs> yep, my Arclight Phoenix deck needs graph tigger's cage. And that was a, a great experience. So, you know what? I, if I'm going to add one more, I did yeah. have a really, really fun match against Doomwake during the tournament. I didn't yeah, know you were going to five. Yeah, we played in round five. I remember it was round four. He was playing Gruel, and I was I'm playing Forest Invoke. And I went in game one. Um, 
And then in game two, uh, I'm on the draw. And I have, like, a pretty strong opener uh, that's going to, like, put a bunch of stuff into play. Uh, and he goes turn one, elf, turn two, Rampaging Ferocidon. And I was like, I should have played this Ornithopter out. I forgot he might play it. Like, I didn't think he'd have Ferocidon. Maybe he, it makes sense that he would. Um, but I was like, okay, well, I'll take one more damage. So I, like, play the, the Ornithopter and, like, Rebirth and invoke all this stuff. Uh, by the end of that game, the Ferocidon dealt me 15 points of damage. <laughs> I dealt one to myself with a with a Battlefield Forge. Uh, and I stopped playing more things out into the board because I didn't want to die to like getting stomped if I drew an Imidane's Recruiter, which would win the game on the spot. And uh, yeah, no, that was combat damage, by the way. It was all triggers that happened <laughs> that dealt me damage. That's and so sick. Uh, I very easily won that game. It was just not even close. <laughs> like, Dimwick and I just sat there and I was like, yeah, I'll just take all these triggers. You cannot beat this warden unless you draw a Crow and War. And I have, um, like, I have a chop down for my own warden and I have a second warden as well. And if I draw the Seven Days Recruiter at any point, you die. So it's just like, didn't matter. Took. 14 damage the card he played on turn... Or 15 damage the card he played on turn 2. And, uh, yeah, the game was just not even close. That's so sick. Awesome. Well, another way to get some interaction on the show is to leave a comment on YouTube. We didn't have one for last week's episode. But if you want to support the show, uh, engaging on social media and stuff like that is great. It's always uh, appreciated. Speaking of engagement, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Mason E. Clark. If you want to get coached, you can reach out via that same Twitter DM or my email, which is masonyclark at gmail.com. Put coaching in the description. Um, you can find me over at twitch.tv slash the Mason Clark. And I will be uh, at Magic Con um, Chicago uh, later in the year. And I'm going to be at the SCG in Cincinnati as well at the beginning of the year. So if you want to see me there, come and say hi. I got to meet a lot of people this weekend, hand out a lot of wristbands. It was really fun. You're never a bother. I'm, you know, I want to meet, I want to talk to you, so come up and say hi. Um, Abe, if someone wants to find you, where can they go? Uh, yeah, you can find me over at twitter.com slash more nothings. Uh, I had a really great time this weekend. I'm really looking forward to the RC in Denver and uh, and the PT and seeing you know you there, Mason, at, uh, at MagicCon. Um, but because of that, I'm not really taking on new coaching right now uh if you're gonna want help for those events you should look to mason or spencer who are both great uh spencer you can find over at um easy game media and the easy game media discord you can find him at uh spencer 13h uh on x right Mm-hmm. Anything else I'm, I'm forgetting for him, Spencer? I, I can't I can't remember the whole thing, Mason. You, you got it all. There's also the Need to Nerd podcast, which is a bi-weekly podcast True. about nerd culture. So there you go. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a happy holiday, and we'll see you all next week for another episode of CCMTG. Bye.